0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a special guest for our audience coming to us all the way from the West Coast, I believe. I hope I, I, I didn't assume that. No, no, not coming from the West Coast. All right. Virginia. Virginia. So coming a little bit further south than Connecticut here uh, is Dr. Harsha Rajasimhao who is the founder and CEO of Jiva. Uh, thank you for joining us today on the Project Purple podcast, Dr. Harsh. Thanks. Thanks for having me, d Well, it's a pleasure. I I know full disclosure, we met via email. So I'm excited to hear the full story. I know a little bit about the story, which is kind of exciting. Um, You know, we we share all sorts of stories here on the Project Purple podcast when we go into the science realm, you know, in terms of clinical trials, um, things that are happening in the lab, things that are happening in the clinic. um, And you've got kind of some exciting stuff that you guys are doing there at Jiva. So uh, we're excited to have you on. So with that, which is customary with all of our guests. The first part of the podcast is always the guest opportunity to share their background about, you know, who they are, what they've done, and and basically get our audience up to speed to where they are today. So with that, I'm going to pass the mic off to you. And as I said before we hit record, you can go as far back as you want on your background or stay as high level as you want. And with that, the mic is yours, Dr. Harsha. Thank you so much, Dino. Uh,
1: I'm uh, Harsha Radhasimpan. I'm the founder of Jiva Informatics. Um, My background is in genome sequencing data analysis. Uh, That's what I'm professionally trained in. For the last 21 years, my career has spanned academic research involving precision medicine, National Institutes of Health, FDA. And in the last 10 years, um, more in the industry side, I turned into a patient advocate globally uh, as I experienced the loss of a couple family members. child to a rare congenital disease, and my younger brother to a chronic condition that he was battling since he was a teenager, uh, That uh, and he could not keep up with the lifestyle demands of diabetes, uh, and he passed away in his thirties. That got me um, inspired to uh, apply everything that I had learned uh, in my career towards accelerating development of diagnostics and treatments for rare and chronic conditions, including enabling access to these life-saving therapies, irrespective of where the patients might be located. You know, With the use of digital uh, solutions and platforms, it, it's still a big surprise that most of the patients who participate in clinical research tend to be within 50 miles of where a clinical trial site is located. And that just is not acceptable, given how far the technology has advanced. And the life science industry is only the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of that. And so I'm excited to be here uh, to join you, Dino, to share the story and how this can help people with uh, cancer, rare, uh, chronic, or any disease, as uh, travel and logistical burden is the big barrier to enable access
0: more widely. So was this an idea, and you just said something, I mean, you know, how do we put this? Like life goes on, right? And this is something that we've said about the pandemic, right? Like it's almost, I I remember, I bring this story up. I remember we had a, a physical therapist one of the very few episodes of the Project Purple podcast, and we talked about, you know, at that point in time, it was about running, and and there's a point to this story, and this is the analogy that I'll I'll bring into it, and I said, you know, the great thing about running for me is, you know, you can go to a marathon and you can see people from all walks of life, all different shapes and sizes, and everyone gets to the finish line. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like with, with injuries, you know, and how this relates to physical therapy is like the body finds a way. And, um, you know, it's kind of like water, water always will find a way, right? It's so fluid and your body is so fluid in the sense that, you know, it'll find a way and, and, and it will continue on to, to do it. And you think about the pandemic, right? Like life continued to find a way, right? But though, then there's people though, that get, lost in that shuffle, you know, here in the pandemic, you know, in terms of, you know, access to care or, you know, keeping up with routine care. And, you know, this is something like, you know, as we record this and this will air in a couple weeks. So we're, you know, timeline wise here, you know, we're talking about the end of 21 going into 22, you know, and, you know, we're starting to see mortality creep a little bit. And I know last year. A lot of the clinicians were saying, like, hey, we're gonna have this catastrophe on our hand in the sense of diagnosing cancers early on because we're gonna catch people late stage and there's not gonna be a lot of options because people stop doing the routine screenings. And so, you know, with all that being said, this idea of w- what you're talking about, was it something that was there? And then, you know, clearly what's happened with the pandemic has kind of escalated things? Or was it just like timing? You know, when I was in the insurance business, it was never about timing the market. It was always about time in the market. (laughs) So was this idea about a little bit of timing or was just something that, hey, like, you know, it's kind of like the reality of what the situation was, which happened to be great timing? It's
1: the latter, you know. So this journey began several years ago in 2018 and um, then uh, in 2019 is when we officially registered our company to and then even raise some capital and we were well underway to start uh, with this platform development but before we went ahead and did that uh, well before the pandemic um, we got a grant from the national science foundation to go out and validate our idea right? Um, It it doesn't look like I am the first person to think of this idea, right? So nothing, uh, there's no rocket science (laughs) here. Uh, But when, why has this not happened yet? Because the technology exists uh, in some form or fashion, ability to monitor remotely, uh, video, telemedicine, all those technologies existed, yet adoption was extremely slow. And the life science industry is known to be a crawl walk and run industry for decades and clinical trials have been running for about 100 years and the randomized controlled clinical trials is considered the gold standard for about 70 years now and and so there was nothing new so the big uh uh, thing that we wanted to do before we actually invested in building the product is validate the idea right and understand What's the barriers? What are the objections of various stakeholders, whether it's the biopharmaceutical companies and sponsors, uh, whether it's the sites who run the actual studies and recruit patients, whether it's the CROs that act as the operational uh, clinical research organizations, and regulators, and patients, and caregivers. And talking to all these different perspectives, even within a sponsor organization, There are influencers, saboteurs, you know, the IT security always wants to say, hey, you know, data privacy is a big concern, let's not do this. How are you going to verify the identity of patient? So we heard a ton of objections from every single stakeholder there was. So before we fell in love with the idea, we wanted to make sure it's worth falling in love with. And so, yes, so we we had this idea and we got this validated by listening to more than 2000 stakeholders. And uh, by now, and we had at least spoken with 500 before the pandemic even began, and that was already validated. And that's when we were in the middle of development as well, uh, of prototyping and the initial MVP and so on. So now we have come a long way. We now have uh, validated referenceable customers who have tried and uh, validated that the platform works, and of course the a pandemic did add a lot of fuel in the right direction. So it, the acceleration was enormous. Uh, many people say 10 years worth of acceleration in one or two years. That's so
0: fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about the idea of uh, Jeeva Life and, and what you guys are trying to accomplish here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the main goal for us was how can we accelerate the speed of uh, therapy development, right? So uh, whether it's uh, pancreatic cancer or any disease, um, it, uh, on an average, it takes about 10 to 15 years to bring one new therapy to market. And it costs uh, over two and a half billion dollars. That's the average cost of bringing one. The reason is nine out of 10 drug candidates fail during the development process. Only one of 10 succeeds. And that means we got to uh, make it more efficient. What really hurts is late stage failures. Drugs that get past the phase one, phase two clinical trials and fail in phase three that you know, hundreds of millions are lost by the time um, in R&D and patients are waiting and then now it's not approved. Now patients are not no longer going to have access to the therapy and that's hap- that happens with nine out of ten drugs. And when we started asking the question why is this the case? What are the top three reasons that you know, it takes so long and costs so much money, people pointed at patient recruitment, patient recruitment, patient recruitment, right? Uh, Number one. And why is patient recruitment so hard? Top three reasons. Because patients are not located in the metro areas close to Boston or Bay Area or Bethesda. Because patients uh, are geographically sparse and distributed, it's hard to screen them. Uh, Many times it requires, uh, have a complex inclusion-exclusion criteria before a patient can enroll in a clinical trial and three lack of awareness you know uh, 99% of patients never hear about a clinical trial they are not even asked a question would you like to participate in this clinical trial and so that those were the barriers now of course if you are restricting the and all the patient recruitment to the four walls of a clinical trial site of course the number of patients going and visiting a physician for a specific Uh, for a specific physician uh, in a specific clinical trial site is going to be limited. Uh, Much of the patients in the United States still rely on community hospitals and community clinics for their routine healthcare. And so those were the challenges, right? So we needed to utilize the offline Rick and Mortar uh, methodology and go online, use the social media, use the internet to find and engage patients educate and inform patients about clinical trial, what are the risks and benefits. There is a lot of misconceptions and myths and even mistrust uh, about the healthcare system in the uh, the community. So we need to do a lot of awareness education uh, through online and digital means through different channels. That means we need to utilize a lot of the communication channels like audio, video, texting, email, social channels, all of these are at our disposal, uh, which we have not been historically leveraged until recently. Now, the pandemic has left us with no choice. And so this crawl, walk, run industry is starting to run uh, very fast. And that's very exciting for us. Uh, and that's why it makes this a very interesting, impactful, and uh, gratifying place to be right now.
0: So... Something just came up, and I'm going to save that question. But so in theory, then, it's a digital platform that will empower patients to be able to get access to clinical trials for all these rare and chronic conditions and diseases. And in theory, we hope that this kind of allows us to eliminate, like we, like we know, like the, the billions of dollars, the nine out of 10, and I, I think, and then I, and I mean, I don't want to make assumptions here, but why, why do, why do we fail? Right? Well, science is trial and error, first of all, right? Like we all have to, let's, let's agree to that. Um, but I wonder though, you know, if, if you think about the clinical trials and, and you're right, like the, and you said it three times, patient recruitment, patient recruitment, patient recruitment. And, and I don't have the answer to this, but maybe this is the answer. But if if patient recruitment wasn't the issue, would we would nine out of ten fail
1: though? Uh, it would be maybe six out of ten. You know. Correct. Uh, yeah. So there is about uh, one fourth or one third of the clinical trials. Thirty uh, percent of all clinical trials are terminated. Yeah. Uh, be- because of poor enrollment, and eighty-five percent of all clinical trials are delayed at least by a few days. And every day that a clinical trial is delayed can cost lives, but also cost of biopharmaceutical companies 600000 to $8 million in lost revenue for the days because these drugs and therapies rely on a patent life mm-hmm. which uh, have a maximum life of 18 years in the US, PDO. And by the time they complete their research development, clinical development, and they get into the market, Uh, you know, 12 to 14 years of those 18 years have already passed, right, Uh, have elapsed. And so you you have a very short window of time after the drug is approved to recover the return on investment. So every day is very important. Uh, And to answer your question on how exactly Jiva helps speed this up, right, it's an e-clinical platform which is designed to help screen patients remotely via telemedicine through surveys and questionnaires or other uh, digital means. If they are eligible, enroll them into the study by informing and educating them first, obtaining a, a electronic informed consent through digital signatures. It may seem trivial, but electronic informed consent is a unsolved problem even today, uh, especially if it has to be done remotely, where patient is not, in the same room with the physician investigator who is running the study that's because the regulators the institutional review boards impose certain requirements and expectations because if they view it as a divine contract between the physician and the patient now it's you know you, typically it has been done in a 15-minute live interactive session between a physician consulting with a patient and uh, explaining the risk benefit, whether it's a good fit or not, whether the patient fits, uh, etc., And the patient has the ability to ask questions uh, and get clarifications during the consultation. And then uh, take the paperwork home, come back uh, next day and say, yes, I want to enroll. Uh, I slept over it. I, I think this is the right thing for me to do. And so I'm going to do this. So uh, imagine accomplishing all of this without having that in-person, face-to-face interaction, right? So that's where we listened to various objections from all the stakeholders and integrated that as a module, um, developed it from scratch and uh, have that as a remote electronic touchless informed consent module. Now, once the patient is enrolled, there is various activities that need to occur throughout the course of a clinical study, like survey-based data uh, collection, questionnaires, uh, whether it's clinician um, making those assessments or the patient self-reporting how they are feeling if on a daily basis, maintaining a electronic diary uh, on a daily basis on any comorbidities, like if they get an infection, they took an I- antibiotic, any um, uh, concomitant medications that they tr- had to take uh, to deal with their r- routine um, lifestyle issues. And then there is follow-up visits which can be done through telemedicine or video call instead of having to go in-person unless it's an absolute necessity you know if there's a ct scan or an mri scan uh, or any medical procedure uh, requiring in-person visit they, that cannot be avoided but whenever there is an opportunity they could uh, use uh, these technologies to replace the travel to the site that's what we enable all of this, right? Um, and the ability to report any adverse uh, event, any unexpected clinical, clinically significant uh, uh, event that may occur for a given patient. Ability for the patient to report that and for the ability for clinical uh, site staff members to be able to engage. Now, all of this is very hard to do even in, in person, uh, let alone remote, right? Now, Many patients may not have a real person to talk to and feel uh, on a regular basis. And that's why it becomes a critical factor to ensure patient engagement is strong throughout the course of a clinical study. And that means you, you want to have audio, video, texting, emailing, various ways in which patient can contact the site or the site can contact the patient, both ways. That's what we enable with with our platform um, at the sponsor level, or at the site level, or at the CRO level, to it, it empower them with a single digital platform that can help them walk through every step of the process from patient screening, recruitment, engagement, retention, and completing the entire story.
0: It's powerful. So I, I said I had I put a note down before, but then you just said it again, and I, I think though. You know, you you said, you know, using all these forms of, of digital platforms, but I mean, this is kind of where I, I feel, you know, so there's this massive, we all know, like there's this massive shift of, um, you know, baby boomers that, you know, are, you know, getting older, you've got the new generation and, you know, this doesn't necessarily talk about a specific cancer, but all cancers, right? In rare and chronic conditions. So, um, but the thing that's important here though, so you, you have different, Populations, right? And I think this is like the one thing where, where I think this industry, science as a whole, where, and, and and I take blame for this too, sometimes for us too, in terms of what we do from an advocacy standpoint. But you got to go where the patient is, and, and that's kind of what I wrote down. What you said, right? Like, so if it's yeah. text, if it's social media, if it's, you know, Zoom, um, you got to go and you gotta be able to, to meet that patient where that is. And, and you know, I think the one thing, as we said before, like the pandemic, you know, has taught us a lot of lessons here. And, you know, that's, you you mentioned, you know, with the acceleration of telehealth, you know, I mean, Zoom's been here. I mean, we've had a Zoom account for three years and, you know, prior to the pandemic, but, you know, we just started, you know, and I don't know if it was Zoom, but we had some sort of system where we could do video conferencing. Um, but we did have Zoom prior to the pandemic, just by circumstance. I think for about a year, because uh, we had an employee who lived in the Boston area, so we would use Zoom. And then naturally, when the pandemic hit, it like you know it was the it was the new thing to do, right? It was like having a cell phone when cell phones came out. You like you had to have a Zoom account. So um, you know, but that to me though is I, I think we failed. We have failed as a as a at least for my standpoint uh, coming from twenty thousand feet that. Um, you know, I don't think science has done a good enough job of meeting patients where they connect and where they interact. And so that's kind of fascinating to me, you know, just hearing what you're saying, you know, being able to do that is just so powerful, right? Because, um, you know, I think the one thing from from an awareness standpoint and and maybe from a, a patient advocate standpoint, why people don't get into clinical trials is they don't understand it, right? They don't have the knowledge. But now if you meet that person, where they, where they consume their information and where they're getting their knowledge and you're able to provide that information and give them the knowledge necessary to make an informed decision, like all the hard work's done.
1: Yeah, that's one part of it. The other part is, yes, I'm, uh, I now understand. I want to enroll. But if the site is located 300 miles away, I need to hop on a plane every month and I can't travel myself. I need a caregiver to go with me. I'm wheelchair-bound. It, it's just not going to be convenient to ask another family member to take time off their paid time, uh, PTO, and go with them embark on travel every month. You know, But if it is 2 out of 10 times that you need to travel, but 8 out of 10 times you can accomplish the same goals remotely from the comfort of your home, that makes it all the difference, right? So now, suddenly, uh, when only three out of hundred patients eligible patients were enrolling, now all of a sudden you you may see seven or ten patients in saying yes.
0: Yeah, do you think I'm going to put you on the spot here? And this is a loaded question, Harsha. Do you think like? And I've always heard this, you know, from and I'm not going to name names, but, you know, there's certain centers and they say, oh, well, we have, you know, the most amount of clinical trials available in, you know, and I'm going to, you know, East Oshkosh, Wisconsin, you know, in the metro area, you know, and they kind of beat their chest to that. But then just because you have that many clinical trials open, maybe the question should be, well, how many patients do you have fully enrolled, right? So do you think there's been an emphasis? So part of that, so this is where my question is really is, do you think like for these at, and it usually happens at an academic center, right? Because usually the community setting hospital is not 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 going to have clinical trials potentially open to that that degree. But so at yeah. these academic centers, do you think it's just a matter of them just beating their chest, or I mean, maybe there's financial incentive. But I would imagine if the trial doesn't get fully enrolled, then the incentives aren't there anymore.
1: That's right. So what happens is uh, these academic medical centers are usually uh, located in metro areas and they do serve a uh, dense population and they are likely to find the necessary numbers or enrollment goals for most part, let's say, uh, but that's not uh, to say that they struggle uh, to enroll even, even in these academic medical centers. And having Every site may have a target of, say, 10 patients, right? Uh, in a 100-patient trial, they may need 10 such sites, each enrolling at least 10 patients each. And many times they are competing for the same pop, uh, patient population, right? They may already be on a uh, Pfizer drug, for example, and a new Merck drug may be targeting the same Uh, type of cancer or same disease. Now, the same patients cannot be enrolled in two different trials, so they they need a lot more patients. And so that's where the opportunity and the gaps are, right, Um, to be able to find and enroll. And none of these academic medical centers are advertising when they beat the chest, They need to say, irrespective of where you are located, you can still access clinical trials going on at our facility. You, you don't have to be within 50 miles of where where we are. You, you could be 5,000 miles and still be eligible for so, at least certain clinical trials which they can access remotely. That's what needs to change, right? And, and it needs to be more widespread. Uh, we have seen a significant lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion mm-hmm. uh, over the years. And if you are targeting uh, specific regions you know, geographically, that automatically is only as diverse as the uh, you know population served by these sites, right? Um, so uh, you've got to go beyond those uh, confines of the geographic boundaries of the physical location.
0: But if we break down those boundaries and provide access to everyone, then it becomes a non-issue, right? So then in theory- Absolutely you know, then everyone has access to the trial. And, and that, that's really the, the challenge, right? I, I think the challenge is access and, and knowledge and knowledge as we know is power, right? So if we empower the patients to have the information readily available, like you said, yeah. they're gonna make a decision within 24, 48 hours, either they're in or they're out, right? And yeah. if we eliminate the barrier, the other barrier of access to it, regardless of where they live, um, it's huge. huge it's a it's a total game changer so this is all amazing to me because as i've said in past like you know the more that we can empower patients and the more that we can provide access to stuff like this um in particular clinical trials that could be a game changer potentially for so many patients that necessarily won't be able to like physically drive if they don't need to. Right. Like you said, like if, if it's, if it's a difference of, Hey, you have to be there two physically two out of the 10 times versus, you know, 10 out of the 10 times and you live far enough away. I've always said people will find a way. Right. And and there's many groups out there. There's organizations that can help facilitate, you know, that transportation or, or that sort of challenge that may be in front of the patient. Um, so it's it's exciting to hear, and it's awesome. So where are you guys in your stage in terms of where it stands today?
1: We have uh, validated the platform with uh, several academic medical centers, uh, investigator-initiated studies, and we are uh, signing up uh, as partners with uh, CROs and global IT services uh, organizations that are leveraging our platform in a white-label uh, manner to service their sponsors or uh, grant, uh, you know, funded uh, clinical research. We are working closely with a number of small to mid-sized biopharmaceutical and medical device sponsors right now to take the platform to that FDA regulated uh, grade, which the technology is there. We are working through the last few um, gaps Uh, in the next couple of months. We expect to be working with, you know, biopharmaceutical sponsors as well. Um, and that's where that's the real validation that you know it's high quality, highly secure. It validated. It meets all the regulatory requirements, not just at the academic level, but at the FDA and the industry-sponsored level. So th- that's where we are, and we are looking for more collaborators and partners uh, who believe in this mission and are bold enough to adopt this uh, type of technology, which is becoming uh, very rapidly widespread. Already.
0: I love it. So, if I'm going to put you on the spot again here, if you had to kind of, if you had your own crystal ball, where do you see uh, Jiva in five years?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we are uh, at the uh, very early stage uh, of this industry adoption, right? So, um, the market is estimated to be uh, $16 billion annual revenue potential. For just the e-clinical solutions uh, space, uh, by 2027, um, so roughly about five years from now. And so, there are more than 88,000 clinical trials underway uh, this year, you know, or a given year, and probably you know less than 5,000 trials are run in a decentralized manner, um, right? Uh, which is you know leveraging decentralization in a non-trivial level. So the potential is enormous here, right? Um, because more and more trials are adopting and are forced to adopt the decentralized approaches. Some may only be doing remote informed consent. Some may only be doing remote patient data collection. Some may only be doing remote clinical assessments, etc. cetera, or some may only be doing telemedicine, but more and more studies are starting to say, Hey, we want to do all of this. Uh, uh, as to the maximum extent possible that the protocol complexity allows us to leverage this technology and so that's where we see ourselves being a part of this revolution that's unfolding right in front of us right now is to be uh, right this wave uh, and be the leader in helping uh, you know 5% 10% or more of these clinical trials to be on our platform
0: I love it. I love it. Um, I got two questions left here for you. And this one was something that came up uh, before that I wrote down. But then I, I know I mentioned this a little bit, but do, do you think there's any lessons to be learned from the pandemic? And in particular, how, and I'm not here to take a stance on whether or not the shot or where uh, that's not the, the mean for the question, but the the rollout of the. Uh, the COVID shot, you know, and in, in terms of how how quickly that was able to be done, um, I know, you know, there, there's been many pieces of literature about you know the work that was done behind the scenes and stuff but is there anything to be learned from that just because of the the like you said it was accelerated it it hit that thing didn't crawl didn't walk they ran really quick with that um so is there anything from the pandemic that we can learn from like the in in other therapeutics that were rolled out um you know even you know now with some of these antibodies now that are being used and i know there's I, i i don't know if this is correct or not but someone told me uh You know, there was something like 80 plus drugs in the pipeline that potentially may hit the market here in the next two years with regards to the pandemic and and how that relates to us. So what lessons can we learn from the pandemic in terms of, you know, drug rollouts and and the acceleration of that science?
1: Absolutely. I I can think of three things. Right. So one, uh, the speed at which the COVID vaccines came were rolled out in six to nine months uh, is unprecedented, historic and something to be extremely proud of for us as a um, mankind uh, at, for where we are at this stage with the science and technology was put to full use and th- there is n- n- no more acceleration possible than what was done already, right? You, you, All the countries were willing to pour billions of dollars into getting a vaccine done as quickly as possible. They were willing to make allowances in regulations, uh, use of telehealth and remote technologies were all allowed during these studies. Why can't we do the exact same thing to all other diseases? Does it have to be a pandemic for us to uh, understand the importance of human health and the value of human life? It just um, uh, defeats my intelligence to see that it it takes something as big as a pandemic for us to realize all this. Uh, and I think that's one big lesson for us is yes, it can be done much much faster than it has been happening historically. And technology and science has not been is not the limiting factor. It's the regulatory barriers. It's the logistical barriers. It's the lack of bold, courageous adoption of technology and implementing them and be willing to experiment, take some calculated, informed risks. That's what is missing, right? That's the big number one lesson. Number two is um, the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, got exposed, right? Like we saw, even in these COVID vaccine clinical trials, which is all public now, we see about 80% Caucasian uh, and predominantly male participants, right? And that's been a problem uh, to ensure that these vaccines and drugs that are meant for much broader consumption work on all people, not just on a small subset of the target population. And and so it, there is a significant interest, willingness to make more equitable access to clinical trials, clinical research, but also beyond that. that that's the lesson number two. And lesson number three is that the uh, it's just slipping my mind now <laughs> there's a, uh, uh, maybe my age is catching up
0: <laughs> <laughs> well there's many lessons I mean I, I think you know I, it, it's so fascinating to me and, you know, this is like hard for me logically, because, you know, being in this space 11 years and seeing how quickly we accelerated that. So I, I guess to my point, and maybe this will sum it up, Harsha is like, if it can be done there, we can do that here. Right. Yeah. Um. So and, and, you know, was it done perfectly? Probably not. Um, And I know, you know, time will tell um, in terms of, you know, what worked, what didn't really work really well and what what we could probably improve upon. But so those are the things that kind of get me excited for this space, you know, and how we take these things and, and relate them to cancer and particularly, you know, rare cancers like pancreatic cancer, which is considered a rare cancer just because of the numbers, but You know, so that's where I get excited about this. And I mean, to your point, you know, you said something earlier that I I have written down here, you know, like with this type of advancement, you know, we can go from 9 out of 10 to, you know, 6 out of 10, and that's a huge difference, right? And and you said it a couple of times, you know, and, and, you know, allowing everyone to get the same type of quality of care, or maybe not the same type of quality, because that's going to vary from institution to institution. But if everyone can get access to clinical trials, regardless of where they live, regardless of their, you know, naturally, I'm not talking about trial eligibility, but you know, in terms of their economic level or you know yeah. where they may live um, with regards to being next to a major medical center or not, you know, is is huge, and that and that's I think the biggest problem that we face as a population here in the United States is just yeah. the right access to good care. Uh, yeah. and and the more that we empower patients and give them the ability to do that, uh, I think we're one step closer to you know that reality of ensuring that everyone gets the same type of care at a yeah. very high level regardless of the, you know their race their sex, uh, their e- economic level. Um, and that's really, really powerful. And I think that's when we'll start to see, you know, game changing numbers in terms of, yeah. you know, disease progression, and then also in terms of survivability.
1: Yeah. And that reminds me the third uh, uh, item that I was thinking of earlier, you uh, know, which is continuity and integrity of clinical trials during a pandemic, right? The, uh, the pandemic has brought much uncertainty, we thought, we were trying to get ahead of it with the vaccines, and now we have Omicron variant scare, and you know it's going to be another variant in a few months, right? You never know. So there are still a lot of uncertainties associated with this pandemic and other things that we don't control, like you know the tornadoes that flattened the Kentucky uh, side just uh, unfortunately last week uh, mm-hmm. has been so uh, disapp- you know disheartening for everyone. But you know, if there were any clinical trials going on, that's the last thing that would be on anybody's mind. But they do suffer as a result Correct. of such nat- natural disasters and what have you. So unexpected things do happen. So one of the the third thing that I was going to say, the pandemic taught us is to be prepared for the uncertainties uh, and never take it for granted. Which means you you should have the option to provide flexibility for patients to participate from where they are. Maybe some of them got displaced, but they can still participate from where they are uh, through a telephone call or or, or a remote engagement, but they may just not be able to travel quite yet, right? Uh, And so that having the flexibility in operations, in-person versus remote and various other types of flexibility that's necessary to ensure that the clinical trial can continue without losing integrity and quality whether due to pandemic or other natural disasters. I, I think it's uh, that's the third lesson I would say, that every sponsor should be uh, prepared for. And a platform such as Jiva, which enables that level of flexibility, would be critical for them to feel like they are prepared
0: And as we said before life goes on right like this is going to continue it's going to be the next one like you said it could be another mutation um who knows or it it could be you know i know there's some people out there that said you know this is just a test to the next one but um we've got to be prepared to your point um and this allows that to happen harsha great stuff here uh i want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing all the great things you are doing with jiva if someone heard something today and they want to learn more, they want to connect with you, where's the best place to do that? I know before we mentioned, you know, going to where people are. So I'd uh, love to hear where people, our audience, can connect with you and learn more about Jeeva.
1: Well, I'm relatively easy to find on the social media. You know, I'm a big proponent of social uh, channels. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, um, you can find me uh, at Harsha Rajasimha. Uh, as well as my company, to learn more about Jiva, you can go to jivatrials dot com, J E E V A T R I A L S, jivatrials dot com.
0: Awesome, Harsha. Thank you for all you do for the medical community, and thank you for coming on the Project Purple podcast and
1: being a guest. It was my honor being here. Thanks for having me. You know,
0: thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Download the Project Purple Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. to next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast.